Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Chris Fowler. Chris is the General Counsel of Technology at BT in the UK, and it's a great discussion. There are a few things that really stand out for me in this discussion. Chris talks about three things that really impacted his career. One, the power of just saying yes, which I think is fantastic advice. Second, the importance of mentors, and Chris gives a special shout to the mentors that made an impact on him and why. And thirdly, Chris has spent some time as the COO of the legal function, And he talks about the journey in that function and importantly, the impact in the eyes of the senior leadership of PT that Chris's time there had for him in the sense that the respect they had for him and and really the impact that had on his career. So I think it's a fantastic insight for anyone in the GC role. But anyways, enough of the intro. Hopefully you'll enjoy the discussion with Chris. I'm sure you will. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Fantastic to have you on, Chris. Now, the way I usually like to kick off the show is a little bit about the personal journey. We all love the personal journey. So very high level, I'm going to kind of outline yours, and then I'm going to ask you to do a bit of a deeper dive and tell us how that came about. So you start in the 90s, in-house counsel, I think, some time at Volkswagen, a bit of time at Experian, but you got to BT, I think, in the late 90s, and most of your career has been there. I think I can see here, commercial lawyer, major projects, and then a few years ago, you took on the COO role. So we're going to do a bit of a deeper dive on that. And now currently the general counsel of technology at BT. So tell us a little bit about how that journey came about. <laughs> well planned and executed or, or something a little different? No, do you know, if the truth be told, I really just wanted to get a job that enabled me to travel and see people because I love, you know, traveling. And to be honest with you, you know, early in the days, you know, working for someone like Volkswagen Experian, I did international work, but I never actually went anywhere internationally. And, you know, bizarrely with BT, although it's British Telecom at the time, you know, it services major corporates across the world with their telecoms needs. And I ended up in South Africa, Japan, India, the US. And I hadn't appreciated it really at the time because it genuinely was driven by... You know, I just want to get out and experience different places, meet different people, see the world. But actually, you worked on stuff with people who ultimately were going places, and that helped your career. And also, you're working on stuff that actually was pretty important to the organization, so that when opportunities did come up, actually, you had a huge amount of credibility, because you could say, yeah, I've worked with X and Y. I've worked in a situation where I've negotiated a Japanese joint venture. I've been out of my comfort zone. And so, you know, unbeknown to me, it probably, being in those types of situations where you're taking a bit of personal risk, and you're doing stuff that, you know, kind of maybe most people would ask a few more questions about before they said yes meant that actually you know kind of when big roles came along in bt you know i was able to secure them and you know i think also it's a you know a a great credit to the organization that bt is as a whole you know in that the only limit to to your ambition really is yourself you know it doesn't put you in a box it gets its lawyers in and you know it gives them opportunities it tries to develop people it tries to move people around the organization and i feel incredibly lucky really to have worked in an organization that Really, for the last you know, 10, 15 years, I've never done the same thing for more than two years. 
So I guess probably ultimately the, 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 the short part of your answer is no strategy, but just a desire to learn yep. and try new stuff and put myself out there a bit. Well, I like that early bit too. So you thought international travel, I'll join some international companies, tried that twice, didn't quite work, did international work, but stayed at home, then joined yeah. a domestic company and then got all the international travel. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. People thought I was a bit odd when I said I worked for BT and I was spending 18 months in Italy. Fantastic. What about some highlights as you look at the different kind of phases of your career? What are some things that stand out for you? Yeah, I think two things really. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to spend 18 months pretty much working in Italy back in 2005. And I hadn't appreciated at the time how much that changed me as a person. You know, it was the first time that I'd right. worked with a real senior exec who was a real tough taskmaster, a head of strategy. Yep. And I forget, you know, he got us in 7.30 calls, you know, most mornings and said, right, you know, we're not here to admire problems, we're here to solve them, yeah? And that was the first time I had sort of what I would call day-to-day -day exposure with a real outcomes-driven executive yep. who had an objective. And we had a really complicated acquisition to do, whereby effectively we were buying a company off three exiting shareholders, and they're also entering into long-term outsourcing agreements. So it was massively complicated and it was BT's biggest venture outside the UK from a revenue perspective it was the first time effectively I had an entity that after completion it was a you know had a billion euros worth of revenue it had a huge amounts of, of profile but just the subtle things it, it, it taught me you know like kind of you know the value of relationships really kind of work if you're working in a different environment you know really having to spend more time understanding if you know where someone else is coming from yep the cultural challenges or the cultural understandings. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, and who wouldn't enjoy kind of, you know, spending pretty much 18 months hanging around in Milan and Rome? You know, I became a massive food snob. Yeah. Yep. Everybody teased me after as I came back because, you know, I wouldn't have a coffee at my desk and I wouldn't have a milk. In oh, that's right. This is not Chris Fowler that left us a couple of years ago. Exactly. Can we have him back? Yeah. <laughs> but it was awesome. Absolutely awesome. Yep. It changed me yep. as a person. Yep. And probably meant that I interfaced because of the importance of the role, again, with people who became effectively CEOs and CFOs of the company and held me in good stead in the future. And if I had to put, put the Italy experience to one side and I put the other, another experience slightly different is, you know, around 2013, 2015, we won the ACC Value Champions, we won the FT Innovative Lawyers Award. And basically, that was the culmination of what up to there had been about five years of working with alternative providers, ostensibly yep. around, you know, setting up our front door triage system. And if I look at that now, you know, 2021, 11 years later, it's still going strong. It's on about the fourth iteration of the technology. It's no longer seen as being something where do we really have to use that? Actually, the yep. lawyers use it as a means to make sure that they can funnel work that shouldn't be coming to them or to funnel work when they're on holiday. It automates where the work goes. It gives us a view of our baseline. And I guess, you know, when you look out in the market now and you talk about people just adopting triage, I look back and think, well, who have been doing that yeah. since 2010? That's you know? impressive, yeah. So, you know, that's, having, having that stand in the test of time long after I've left that part of the business and continue to be developed by others, I think, you know, it feels like a nice achievement. Yeah, it's funny. That's kind of almost like the legacy stuff, isn't it? The legacy in that you're leaving a legacy, it's making an impact and it's changed the way people behave, yeah. making them more productive. So 
And if you can see that after you've stepped away from that and that's continuing, that's got to be pretty fulfilling, I think, in any kind yeah, of career. Absolutely. And you know, I remember in the early days, people were saying, yeah, why are we using you know, offshore providers? Why are we kind of, you know, just yep. you know, computer says, no, I can't sort of talk to my... But actually, the reality is we couldn't carry on with the, the way we were working, you know, in those ways. We had to do it differently. We were compelled to by the pressures on us. So to see it now being sort of regarded as being, well, you know, we couldn't do without this is, yeah, it's pretty good. And was that during your time kind of heading up like the COO function and really taking responsibility for the legal yeah, operations? Before that, you know, I, I ran that the... before that, right. Yeah, I ran all of the commercial lawyers effectively, yep. you know, initially within one trading division. And then across most of our enterprise divisions in the UK. Yep. And that's where really we tried to drive a lot of the change because we were doing, you know, a lot of customer supplier agreements. You know, there's a big amount of volume there. And, you know, we didn't have the luxury of just throwing people at it. You know, I actually ended up becoming the, the COO around 2017. Right. And probably, you know, when I was originally asked it, you know, I was a bit nervous, but it's one of those occasions where when a group general counsel at the time, a guy called Dan Fitz, said to me, I think you should do this. I didn't really feel like, you know, I felt like I really had to do it, yeah? Yep, yep. <laughs> And look, a COO role, no doubt you'll be dealing with, you know, changing behaviours amongst lawyers. How hard can that be, really? I mean, it's, a, it's typically a walk in the park, isn't it, isn't it Chris? <laughs> you know what? I look back on it now, and I often remember a number of my friends who are lawyers were like, why, why do you want to do that? You know, you're not doing legal work. But actually, the skills I learned in that role, I feel are way more transferable than any other skills I would have got. Say, for instance, if I went from commercial law into litigation, you know, yep. Yep. I was treated effectively as a peer in the organization, as someone who was running a business unit, who was responsible for a set of budget, a, a numbers, responsible for a set of people, responsible for a set of outcomes. And what, you know, kind of I found really interesting was, you know, just how it kind of made me more comfortable with budgets, became more numerate, more comfortable with data, more comfortable with systems, with process. And these are all things which I think lawyers look at and kind of, you know, if I want a better word, they look down on a bit, but they're the lifeblood of a business, you know, and if you don't have a, a real good handle on those, as you'll know, you know, you haven't really got a view of where your, biz, where your business is at and how successful it is. Well, that's really interesting because there's a couple of themes that come out quite a lot in the discussions that we have with GCs. And certainly probably the most important one and the one that comes out on top is the need and the requirements from the organization that you're running the legal department like a business or a business unit. So you've now done that. And so not only does it sound like it's, it's certainly the case at BT, but the other thing that I think is interesting is the skills that you develop from it and the standing that it sounds like it created for you within the organization and the respect that you got from the business. Is that fair and, and from the yeah, senior yeah. executives? The business looks at you differently. You, know, you, don't, yep. you don't go into a meeting and, gosh, how are we going to solve this contract? And you see the sort of the shoulders stag. Yep. Actually, you go into a meeting and it's like, so where are you? What are the risks in your budget? You know, how are your people doing relative to others? How engaged are they? You know, what, what are you doing with your talent? And, and these are issues. I mean, I spent 10 hours yesterday on the operational reviews within BT technology, and they basically have three different parts to them. It's like, you know, what are you delivering? How are your people? Where are you in your numbers? Yeah. Yep. And the skills around that, around managing that, I, I think probably I hadn't appreciated just how much, you know, muscle I would use to sort of get up to speed on that. You know, in, very, in the very early days of being the COO, I always remember when everyone sent me an email, I just, I wouldn't look at it for half a day because it scared me. Yeah. <laughs> 
paranoia around the yeah I, I can i can well imagine but now your comfort level around obviously all the operational stuff it must be must be huge and it's giving you a level of confidence that you would never have got yeah for sure and i think what it does it's also a bit of a privilege in the sense that probably you don't realize actually that you get in a coo of a legal function especially one of like a bt you get a view across the function you know you understand you in a way in which probably the group GC doesn't necessarily see all the time, yep. they're very focused on a set of kind of specific issues. They're supporting the board and the executive committee. They don't necessarily have to deal with one day it could be the employment law team, another day it could be the pensions team, yep. another day it could be the commercial team. Now, that variety that you're dealing with, you know, is really interesting. And you know, I definitely would encourage anybody who is thinking about it, that, you know, if I have one regret, it would be I didn't do it soon enough because it developed a whole bunch of skills, got me out of what effectively was my specialist area, which was commercial lawyer, and actually just opened up a whole new world to me in terms of, you know, kind of things to get involved in and things to learn. So tell me then, if you've got someone else who's looking to take on a similar position, large organisation, and it might be a new role, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what advice you'd give them the first like 90 days and then six months, what do they need to focus on? Yeah. Where's the typically the low-hanging fruit or the best bang for your buck in those early days of setting up a role like that? Yeah, you've got to understand, I think, your, your organizational construct, right? You know, if I look at our function, we're very centralized. Everything is in one place. So therefore, building up a total cost of ownership sounds pretty boring, pretty yep. fundamental if you want to drive any sort of change. If you're in a federated function then clearly your ability to influence and drive change is going to be harder. So understanding where the numbers are coming from is essential. And probably moreover, really understanding, you know, the pockets of legal spend that are out there that inevitably, you know, kind of are not controlled or under the supervision of the legal department. Really getting your handle. Because I think once you've got your handle on the total resources that are available for the legal function, that's when you can think, okay, so where am I going to take this? Yeah? Yep. You know, and because to your point, Jim, I think, you know, you don't really know what the low hanging fruit is until you've put your arms around everything. Yep. Yeah. And there will be, but it will very much depend upon the type of organization you're in as to whether it's a highly centralized or highly federated function. And I do think also you're kind of driven as well by the appetite for change, both of the organization you're in and both of the, the group general counsel you'll be working for. Yeah, yeah, Those two people will have a big impact on how you approach your role. I've been lucky enough to work in both organisations and for people who actually were pretty radical and prepared to back you and prepared to accept. There might be a few bumps on the road, but... You know, you don't make a by an omelette by not cracking eggs, you know? Correct. And, and that, that is the road to transformation, isn't it? I don't know if there's any road to any kind of substantive transformation that's not, you know, bumpy in, in, in some yeah. respects. Yeah. And I probably made a mistake that in early in my career that I had, you know, charts with everything we were working on and there was probably 50 initiatives, yeah? Yep. And I soon realised, actually, just focus on three or four big ones and do them well. 
Yeah, you know, that's the key thing. Yeah, so that's the advice now for someone stepping into a similar role, perhaps less mature from you. Just get your arms around the data, basically, what the cost structure is, what the resources you've got, and then focus on the three or four issues rather than 30 or 40. Fantastic. A couple of other, I've got a whole number of questions I'd love to ask you, but just in the interest of time, I'm going to ask you to talk about a couple of other themes that we hear a lot about. So you've talked about the first one, which is the need to run the legal department like a business. Another theme we hear a lot about is there's typically pressure on an organization to have a digital journey to digitize its functions. I'm just wondering, does that resonate with you in the legal department at BT? Is is there that kind of pressure? And what does that actually mean for a legal department, the pressure to digitize? It's really interesting. So in the COO role, I was very much focused on how can I drive change and digitization within the legal In my current role, I'm supporting the part of the business that is trying to drive digitization in our entire business, yeah? Right. And I think, you know, ultimately, the the big difference, you know, if you look at the two, they're probably one of scale and one of effectively, you know, probably the difference I see between the way in which legal does it and the way in which the business is doing it is legal very much looks at how can I do the work better or differently or more efficiently, yeah? The business, I think, when they're looking at digital transformation is looking at how can we make customer journeys better, simple, more effortless, yeah? Now, and the pandemic has brought this to a head, you know. Our shops have been closed, yeah? Sometimes our call centers have been closed. So you need to be able to have digital journeys like you or I do when we go online. Yeah. And, you know, I, I saw a classic one the other day, you know, we're looking at how many clicks does it take for me to order and buy broadband? And that, I think, is the challenge for us in legal, right, is how can we actually turn what effectively are very well-intended initiatives, right, to change and improve the operating model, but to turn it into one of where actually the customer's journey, what they're getting from legal, is becoming more digitized, yeah, it's becoming more automated. You know, when I put my work request into the legal team in BT, you know, it gets assigned a number, it gets dealt with, maybe a contract gets automatically generated, you know, maybe the work gets instructed via a, a portal, whatever, but you kind of take out as many of those manual handoffs. And the one thing that always, you know, amazes me is actually the, the more manual handoffs you can remove, the better the customer experience can be. One of the things that's driving us, you know, in our business is like something like 54 manual handoffs sometimes for us to provision some of our services. We can reduce that. Then the customer experience not only is better and quicker, but it you know they're more likely to recommend us. And I think that's the challenge for legal really is it can't just be about the tech. It's got to be about what's the customer experience. I love that analysis. So one of my questions I often ask is, you know, what do you think the role of the GC and the priorities look like in five, ten 15 years into the future it sounds like but i'm going to let you answer it but it does sound like your answer is well if you could actually really focus on the customer journey aspect of legal so we're treating it just like you're treating any other digital journey of a customer then you'd go a long way to projecting out what that journey looks like or i suppose what the the, the whole legal process looks like in 5 10 15 and, and, and the role that the gc might have in that is that something you see as a key for the successful gc in the future really understanding and focusing on that for their yeah, own team almost two levels of it i guess i see yep. is there's the stuff which you know kind of is very transactional related right and that's yep. the stuff that needs to be 
more automated. The stuff where there's a natural life cycle, yeah? I do see, though, a need for, you know, those people who are you know, not involved in that work to probably be more focused on helping support what I would call the real strategic priorities of the business, yeah? You know, being on the front foot for things so that, you know, you're prepared when a law yeah. comes and you don't act afterwards, yeah? And so, you know, that I, I, I do think that, you know, there is an element where it's not purely just about automating everything. It's about automating the transactional stuff to free people up to contribute more to the real big strategic initiatives. Yeah. And to be almost, you know, as Richard Suskin says, you know, kind of at the top of the cliff, not at the bottom. Yeah. And look, that's a challenge. I know. I mean, we hear a lot about and talk about trying to make sure that the right people are spending the time on the right activities. So you've, you know, focused on the lawyers are focused on the high value work and the stuff that can that is perhaps lower value or more commoditized or can be is more capable of a, a digital kind of process and making sure that people are engaged because we're yeah. always engaged if we're de- dealing with you know interesting more complex matters than some of the drudgery that might exist in you know uh, what what's more traditional you know legal work that one might be doing I also it's a massive opportunity Jim you know I mean I yeah our head of digital was recently challenged I heard them you know someone said so what is digital then? And he basically said, yep. you know, basically pretending the customer's in the middle of the room and there's a multidisciplinary team yep. there to solve their problem and, and deliver an outstanding experience for them. One of those people will be legal, yeah? You know, to yep. make sure that the contract is Correct. as effortless as possible, yeah? It just means that the role will change and rather than remediating things, actually we're creating things is my aspiration. Fantastic. I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit about, I suppose, the last 12 months for you. It's been you know, a difficult environment for everyone. BT certainly have to deliver all its services from no doubt most of the staff at home. You will likewise, and the legal team would have done likewise. Tell me about how that's gone, the challenges and successes or failures you've had around that in the last 12 months. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think the fact that we've you know, kept everybody connected as every telco has around the world by yeah. and large, and enable people effectively to fall back in love with their good old landline and adopt things like Microsoft Teams has been a massive change. You know, people use applications like Teams and you Zoom now. I suspect they're using their mobile phones to make a lot less calls now, you know? And it was really interesting. In the really early days of the pandemic, you found that old habits still sort of died hard and that people were trying to join conference calls on their mobile phone on the hour and then there was a bit of congestion and now people are joining you know teams calls and the mobile traffic voice traffic has gone down i think the biggest challenge for us has been actually just carrying on right because you know we've got a period of time where we are rolling out 4g to some of the most remote parts of the uk including scotland we're you know kind of trying to roll out our 5g network as well which I genuinely believe will be a massive game changer for, you know, for a whole bunch of us. And, you know, you're in this situation where at a very basic level to implement kind of nationwide technologies like that, you need access to the right land. You need access to people to lay concrete and you need access to put up, you know, planning permission to effectively put towers up. Yeah. Little things like that, that you just assume are just, you know, would just happen. Yeah can be incredibly difficult in the middle of a pandemic where everyone's working at home and planning committees are not meeting and, you know, people are not inclined to, to want to do things and courts are not open. But I think that the thing that sort of probably impressed me is we've had to pivot 
you know, and sort of, you know, just change, I guess, the way in which we work. And actually, bizarrely, which I just saw our engagement scores recently, just for legal, actually, they've probably never been better. You know, and I think one of the challenges we're going to have is, well, how do we keep that up when we all go back to the office? Yeah? I don't know. That is, that is a little scary, isn't it? We're, we're yeah. the most engaged where we're not actually uh, in the same room together. So. But I think part of that is because, geez, you know, telecommunications companies have really stepped up in this current yeah. environment and enabled people to communicate like this. But I also think, you know, kind of because we have really focused on well-being, looking out for people, and we're fortunate. We're in a sector which... You know, I feel for people who are in, you know, leisure or in travel. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we're in a sector which, you know, people need, and I feel very fortunate for that. And I think the team feels very fortunate for that as well. So yeah, it's it's had its moments, and I think that the one sort of anecdote I give you is, you know, in the early days, you know, we have a big challenge when the games companies want to kind of launch new games onto our network. Because, of course, every kid will want to download the latest version for PlayStation as soon as possible. But they're big files, yeah? Yeah. And I could tell that, you know, kind of homeschooling wasn't working that great for my son when I'd go up there and he clearly heard me on a call earlier and, and worked out that the latest version of a certain game was coming that morning. <laughs> was out. Doing school, yeah? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting. But, you know, the team have done an amazing job to make sure that, you know, kind of the UK has remained connected. And, you know, throughout it all, I think fundamentally, you know, we sort of almost come around full circle. It's about the people, yeah? It's about, yeah. you know, kind of getting the most out of the people and making sure that they feel part of something that matters. Yeah. Well, you talk about being in kind of a fortunate industry that hasn't been disrupted as much as, you know, the, the, let's say the tourist industry or the hospitality industry. One thing about the legal industry that never ceases to surprise me, I'm never going to bet against it because I kind of bet against it. I thought at the beginning of coronavirus, I thought this is going to be a real struggle. It's going to be a struggle for in-house teams, for, for large law firms. We are going to see some real problems out there. And I thought the market could potentially be decimated or parts of the market for services, but almost the opposite has happened. If, if not the opposite, certainly the my sense is the legal industry hasn't really skipped a beat yeah. or missed a beat. So it's, I think, and it's probably the correct across most professional services, it's remarkably, it's been remarkably resilient. Yeah. And every time I think, oh, there's a big roadblock ahead or something, and look, it's a credit to the industry too, I have to say. So It is, I think the only thing I'd say is, Jim, what I do see is, you know, we didn't really start new plans during the pandemic. Yep. We've definitely got plans to change how we do things yep. when we're out of it. And I do think that, you know, that, that the requirements to carry on, you know, being better, you know, delivering, you know, kind of demonstrably more efficiencies is not going away. Yeah, you know, it's not going away from business. So interesting. So, so again, back to the kind of the what the future looks like for the GC. Do you think that kind of pressure to continually improve the kind of efficiencies that you've already delivered on that will just continue on from an operational sense, delivery of service sense? You you see that as a, an ongoing, especially in organisations which are in highly competitive markets, probably have a lot of intense regulation. Yep. We got like us a lot of assets, right? They need to make a return on over a period. I think it might be a different dynamic if you're in a, a low asset based startup, you know, with, with high growth. Yep. Different kettle of fish there, but definitely in organizations where, you know, kind of you're not seeing the sort of massive growth in the top line, 
where else are they going to kind of you know maintain or increase their profitability which their shareholders are going to be demanding yeah interesting i think that's right the tighter the margin in the industry if you like whether it's the, the industry's older or they're sweating more assets or whatever it might be i think that's certainly the impression that we're getting you know from speaking to general counsels that we deal with it and that pressure can become more or less intense depending upon the economic environment at the time but it's certainly something which is underlying the role and there's certainly an expectation and it comes back to operating the legal department like a business i think there's never a Oh, we're done now. We're, yeah. we're good. We're as efficient as we're going to be. No, yeah, you're right. You're right. And, and I do think a lot of that will depend upon, you know, the nature of the market that that business is operating. Yep. So tell me, again, I like to ask this question. You've got many years of experience, Chris. You've had some, no doubt, some highs, some lows. What kind of advice would you give, let's say, the junior lawyer, the mid-tier lawyer, and the, perhaps the more senior lawyer about, okay, and they want to be a GC. Yeah, yeah. What's the advice that you're giving them with the benefit of the experience that you've got? Sure, yeah. No, thanks, Jim. It's a great question. I mean, two things I'd say, really, is one is, you know, if I look back on it, I probably said yes when I didn't have all the answers. You know, when someone was saying to me, you know, will you do this? We pick that up. I made, you know, it made my business to make sure that I took away problems from my boss. Yeah. Fantastic. And, you know, you can't say yes enough to helping out someone who, who themselves is under way more pressure than, than you probably appreciate at the time. The other thing I think is when I've been at my happiest in my career is when I've been working for someone three people in particular who I'll call out who've all spent time kind of making me a better person and giving me opportunities. So who you work for is crucial. And I work for a chap called David Evely, who's now the general counsel at Serco. And several times, you know, I remember, you know, kind of him sending me off to whether it be Japan or whether it to be California. And I'd be, David, David I've never done this before. And he goes, how hard can it be? I'll be on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, brilliant experience. A shout out, a shout yeah. out to David then. Yeah, Fantastic. Exactly. And then moreover, you know, I worked for Dan Fitz for a while and I always remember Dan saying to me very early in the days, you won't get to the next position doing what you get to get to this position, yeah? Yep. Which was his way of saying, you know, you're going to have to change what you do and how you do it if you're going to be successful. And then more latterly, you know, I've been working for Sabina Chalmers, who's the current GC, and she's come from a, you know, an FMCG background. Yep. And, yeah, her focus on real key performance, you know, key performance indicators and engagement of the team and speed of execution and not sweating things has given me a completely other perspective yeah so I think working for people who can teach you a lot and give you opportunities absolutely fundamental you know when I haven't been happy and I've thought about doing other things it's when I've been working for someone who wasn't really that interested in me or developing me or stretching yep. me or having difficult conversations with me because actually those conversations yep. were about trying to make me better so that would yep, be my advice to anyone really well absolutely we got a shout out to dan and shout out to sabine to have people those two takeaways saying yes rather than saying no and actually aligning yourself with people who are really who are mentoring you or are dedicating the time to improve you and they can be the hardest taskmasters too yep. but they are the ones that you remember yeah and certainly when i think back about team members that i'm most proud of and how they've gone I was typically the hardest on some of those too, but I think that's great advice. If you can find in your career those kind of mentors and people who are taking a genuine interest, and you may work the hardest for them, but typically you get the most out of it too. Absolutely, absolutely. That's fantastic. All right, one question I also love to ask, what have you spent too much time on 
in the past that on reflection, too much time worrying about, which on reflection is not, just not being time well spent. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I think if I look back on some of the stuff I spent originally around negotiating contracts, you know, we spent forever on certain things, you know, which fundamentally were based on the premise of what if, what if this happened? Yep. Yeah. Oh, well, you were trained um, as a lawyer. Yeah, and, and I look <laughs> back and I think, you know what? You know, not that it, I, it, it, I would not do it again, but actually there's got to be a better way to do it. Yeah? You know, I mean, what activity do you kind of do, you know, in business whereby you say, you know, kind of a, I need to cater for the what if, but I can't put a number. What if it go- yeah, and yeah. What, what if it goes wrong? Look, yeah. I, I have to say that that is, uh, I mean, that is ingrained into you from day one at law school. As you know, you're looking for the risks and you're rewarded when you find the risk. And that happens in your early training too. But when you actually think about how much time is spent on that, I absolutely agree. I, I think I, I'd, I'd say the very same thing, actually. And I've just become an audit, sort of chair an audit committee internally. Yep. And the focus there is very much on how do we get to risk tolerance? Yeah? It's yep. not how do we get rid of risk, how do we get to risk tolerance? And I think you know, that to me is a far better conversation. You know, how do we get to that point where it's manageable, not how do we just eradicate it completely? Because that's just... It's just not a economically worthwhile activity. Fantastic. Chris, it was an absolute delight speaking to you. Thank you very much for your time. I know this is going to make an awesome episode and the audience is going to love the learnings they're getting out of this one. Well, thanks, Jim. Real pleasure. And we'll get to catch up face-to-face soon. I hope so soon. All right. See you, Chris. Bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.